Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's reading comes from the first letter of John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers, and you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this love, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Philippians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any shearing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in this form of a God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let the people say. When our First Pres mission team stepped off the plane in Managua, it was late in the evening, hot and muggy, and some of us were putting our feet on Central American soil for the first time. For several years now in Nicaragua, First Pres has tried to make a difference for a cooperative of eight small farming communities. Our denomination's mission co-worker there, that's a newfangled term for missionary, 
is Justin Sundberg, an American who, with his family, lives and works out of the capital city on behalf of our denomination and our Lord. Justin is a 30-something tall drink of water with a broad smile, indefatigable spirit, and floppy hat. Justin was instrumental in planning our week of mission there, and he met us at the airport to take us to a one-story dormitory where we would spend one night before leaving for a week out in the countryside of those eight small villages. From the airport, it was a long drive down dark and dirty highways to the dorm, tucked safely inside a walled compound. Here we began our formal orientation to Nicaragua, a nation poor but proud where 89% of the people live on $2 a day. We learned about the people and their culture, their particular struggles and strengths, and their way of doing things. Here we also met our translator, Carolina, who became a key ally and friend in this week of mission. In the tiny villages, part of our team had prepared to build barrel ovens, recycling steel drums using bricks and some kind of cement made of horse manure. It's true. (laughs) You can make cement out of horse manure. Another part of our team focused their energies on sharing meaningful time with the children in school, classrooms, and churches. Our intergenerational group had adults between the ages of 44 and 74, except for the five people in our group who were under the age of 16. Two of those were attached to me, my son Charlie and his friend Gaden. Our trip leaders prepared us to survive. We knew to check our shoes for scorpions before putting them on, and to go to bed in sleep sacks to keep the mosquitoes off of us. We knew to brush our teeth with bottled water and just say no to raw vegetables. They could not prepare those in our group who were seeing up close for the first time their fellow human beings in abject poverty. My young son would soon experience in 3D how much of the world lives. 2.2 billion people on this planet living on less per day than the cost of the cup of coffee I picked up at Argus Farm Stop on the way to church today. This was one reason I asked Charlie to come. When you look at poverty for the first time, it can change you. It should change you. When you look for the first time at the economic disparity of the world and our place in it, you feel things. You can't help but feel things. And in those moments, seeds can be planted that may affect our life choices from the big, what kind of work we do, to the small, what kind of car we drive, and how much food we throw away. Such experiences help us address the stark realities of this earth with its few haves and its many have-nots. The decision last year to serve only fair trade coffee here at First Press, for example, came from a few people in our midst who had traveled, who had looked up close at the world in need and felt inspired to make life more just and fair for those who grow our coffee beans. We can look and see instability and poverty and human vulnerability and feel numb and be unmoved. What percentage of us 
encounter the unfairness of the world when we travel or read the Sunday Times or drive through Detroit's Cass Corridor? How often are we overwhelmed by that reality and accommodate it, pushing it to the back of our minds, focusing instead on embracing the life we have been given, working hard to make it happy? It is not unusual. What is usual is our tendency to accept that life has struggles, to feel powerless in our position, to offer daily prayers of mere gratitude that we were not born into such circumstances. I fall prey to that, and I bet you do too at times. At the very least, I hoped that our team, for them, that seeds would be planted. Certainly, I wanted that for Charlie, seeds sown deep enough that when we returned home to Ann Arbor to Plum Market, our two-car garage, our central air, our four televisions, our clean tap water, our good medical care, that he might come to see life differently, to think about his place in the world, to grow up and to serve his God by finding ways to serve God's people. It would all begin with that first look at poverty, that first encounter. On that highway from the airport, passing through some of the poorest parts of Managua, we looked out the van windows at the dirt, the piles of debris, the lack of adequate housing, homes made of tin sheets with garbage bags for cover. We looked at dumps side by side to where people were living in squalor and how much damage still remained from that 1972 earthquake that left a quarter of a million people homeless. We smelled the odors of a country with substandard sanitation, stray dogs, people without jobs sleeping on the streets. And what we saw began to sink in, sights bearing witness to the reality of our world and reinforcing the privilege we Americans possess. Though I had spent years telling Charlie not to stare, it's not polite to stare, for those few moments I wanted him not to look away. That he and Lydia and all of us might stare, might look into the eyes of these street dwellers, our Nicaraguan brothers and sisters, might see them, might see ourselves in them. As Paul writes in Ephesians, with the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We spent a week looking at what breaks God's heart, remembering what we are called to do and be on this planet and how we fail. As we unloaded our bags from the van, Charlie turned to me and said, Mom, I could look out the window for hours. This was not the world he knew. This was the world he could no longer deny. And such images would carry us all into our sleep and into our week together. Why did we go there? Why do we go to the Philippines or to Haiti or to Detroit or to Alpha House? Why do we host the rotating shelter in January? It is to answer the admonition by the writer of 1 John that we put our love into action, of course. And each of us finds ways to do that, even if we don't travel or serve meals or regularly curl up in sleeping bags in places of need. Like most mission teams, it was the action part that excited us the most, 
getting tasks done, believing that something we made or did would make life legitimately better for those there in need. Given our goals, one of our greatest challenges was lost time. Merely getting across the mountains from one village to another eats up hours that work could be done. When in Nicaragua you do things the Nicaraguan way, American efficiency is not their goal. The suggestions from the experienced nuclear engineers on our team with fancy degrees and inspired ideas were, for the most part, underappreciated and underutilized by the Nicaraguans because they have their own way of doing things. Thank you very much. This is what so often happens in international mission. We encounter a place so greatly in need, but seemingly impenetrable to transformative help. That is, the particular help we think they need. The hand we lend must be one they are willing to take. And so in a third world country, we adjust, we wait, we look while we're waiting. We look and we look deeper. And in the words of Paul, we are to look in the most faithful way as Jesus looked at us. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It was not passive, this looking. We looked at the skinny stray dogs and our kids befriended them. We looked at the women in the remote villages who were paid to take the groceries we brought and cook them over small wood-burning stoves into our lunch, and we learned to thank them. We looked down at plates full of rice and beans day after day after day, and we became grateful for them. We looked at the 40 or so students in one classroom, all grades together, who were looking back at our team members who were teaching them in Spanish about Michigan and how different it is from Nicaragua. Spoiler alert, it's kind of cold here. (laughs) We looked through scratched safety goggles at the power tools we brought from Ann Arbor, those that we used to slice bricks so that they would fit as perfectly as possible into the base of what would become two community barrel ovens. We had hoped to complete five. We learned to cherish those moments when we really partnered shoulder to shoulder with the Nicaraguan men and women on those projects. Without a shared language, the kids from both countries looked at one another and looked at what they all understood, kicking that soccer ball or throwing a frisbee or weaving strands of string into pretty bracelets. One morning, we looked across a room at village leaders who had traveled for hours, hours over mountainous territory to meet with us in the central village of San Jose de los Romates and share what they are doing to make their communities better. They wanted our help. We looked at their faces, the weathered, leathered skin made from years of backbreaking work in the sun and heat, and we learned to listen. We waited, we looked. We even looked within ourselves. For if at first we are called by Paul to look, then we are called not to look at our own interests. What are our own interests in life and on a trip like this one? Mission opportunities push us to ponder that. Deep in the midst of the world's economic disparity, we have a new angle from which to reflect. And on such a journey, one's interests become clearer Time and space help us reevaluate what we truly need versus what we just plain want. 
During holy time in morning and evening devotions, we intentionally looked to God to help us make sense of why we'd come there and how we would return to our world that would inevitably pull our gaze back to our own interests. As the action part became less the focus, the faith became more fulfilling, and eventually we learned to put aside our expectations about the amount of tangible work that would get done. Mission is always about connection, about breaking down barriers, about learning to to live out what is true in the eyes of God, that God loves us all and nobody is elevated above another. God wasn't counting our ovens and whether all five were completed. But through our open eyes, much was done because we looked. Paul starts with such a simple word in that critical fourth verse of this second chapter, look. What an important word for us as people of faith who follow a Lord who looks at us, not down on us. Change and growth and wonder all take their beginnings when we simply look If your eyes are closed, so is your heart. Paul says so to the Philippians, this congregation he's known to come to love and to know. He's in prison, but he'd heard all about it. They had become divided. uh, There were disparities there, and some thought they were better than others, and it was destroying them. So he writes to them from prison and from his heart, that they've got to find the joy of being in mutual community again. They've got to find the unity they used to enjoy. That cannot occur until they are like-minded with Jesus and with one another, but also when they are look-minded. Look, not to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. The first step is to look. It's such a small word for something that's really not so simple. Looking or being looked at, there is power in the look. To look is to invite risk and vulnerability. Look a mean dog in the eye and you will be sorry. Police in Dayton, Ohio, recently stopped a black man named John Felton because the police officer stated he was making direct eye contact with the police. This past Wednesday, a sick man forced a TV-viewing audience of people in Roanoke, Virginia, to look, to see in horror as he took out his rage on two of his colleagues on live television, an event he reposted on his Twitter feed, recorded from a different angle. Such a tragedy because a disgruntled and unstable former news station employee took power in making people look. To look is a powerful thing. When you look, it will move you. It will change you. Our staff retreat this past week included a visit to the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia at Ferris State University. It was followed by a conversation with its founder. Our staff, many young, many of us with roots in the South, looked at very hard things. We watched a video with graphic images of Klan activities. We looked at thousands of everyday objects, both from decades past and current times, caricaturing black people. We saw hateful t-shirts and bumper stickers produced as recently as this year that have proliferated in response to this nation having a black president. 
It was excruciating to keep looking as we would turn another corner and see yet another display of hate. Reading about racist past and present wasn't good enough, though. We had to look, then look within, and to look at becoming better people and better pastors. It was hard to look. Part of me wanted nothing more than to look away, to look at the exit sign and head straight for it. By looking at what had been and what continues, could we then look towards something else? Could we leverage our encounter with these objects for positive change and profound ministry? In the same way, by looking at the poverty in Nicaragua, by looking at villagers transforming their community with our physical and financial help, by working alongside them, could our team of missioners return to leverage those experiences for positive change and profound ministry? Could we come back from those places to make a better world for the sake of Christ? All of us in this human family are called to look at what pains us, but also to look beyond it to a vision of what is right and to give that vision flesh and bones and breath. All of us in this Christian family are called to look, not as voyeurs, but with the eyes of Jesus, with with hearts of compassion, with selfless giving. Paul's soaring hymn in this chapter tells us how Christ looked at us emptied himself completely until he was wholly spent. Friends, we are called to look at the world and respond in the same way and on his behalf. How are you answering that call? Every time I am at this communion table, I say, look. I hold up the broken bread and I hold up the cup with the juice in it and I say, look. See Christ coming to us in bread and in cup. As that word calls us to table, let that word call us to action for a world in need. Look, see Christ coming to us in how we serve one another. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let the people say, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Lord, we pray for the peace of the world, the unity of the Church of God, and for the well-being of all peoples. We pray for all your children, God. We pray for this gathering of the faithful and for all who praise your name. We pray for those who seek you, doubt you, love you, who are angry and who grieve. We pray for the baptized, those who serve the church, and for our pastors. We pray for those in transitions, those who celebrate new beginnings, and those who mourn the end of a chapter. For the leaders of the world's nations, that they may lead in tune with your will. We pray for our great nation, for peace in our cities, and care to those in need. Help us to promote love amongst one another, and give us strength to always seek hope for a better future. We pray for the beautiful earth that God has gifted us, that we will be guided by love and wisdom to conserve it. For those who travel by air, water, or land, we pray for their safety, 
and for those who wait for them to come home again. We pray that their patience, love, faith, and hope will help them find the strength they need in this time. For the elderly, the widowed, the orphaned, the sick, and the suffering, we pray that they find comfort in your love. We pray for the poor, the oppressed, the unemployed, and the destitute, for prisoners and for captives, and for all those who know and remember them. For those who are no longer with us in body, we pray their souls know a peaceful rest. Lord, we pray for these blessings as we seek you this morning in this space, and we pray that we may always search to know your love. Together, as we pray for the world, our nation, the church, our communities, and our loved ones, let us also pray as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan.